I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Gutsfried. This week on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, it's all about heart and soul. Every small town or big city has that neighborhood restaurant and bakery. Where everyone goes for a special occasion or just their morning coffee. We're sitting down with one of Louisiana's culinary legends, Chef Kevin Belton, who brings authentic New Orleans cooking to life on his latest PBS series, Kevin Belton's Cooking Louisiana. And later, we'll meet with restaurant PR exec Steve Hawili to talk about how he fuses the culinary business with the soul of the food. Everybody has their own message. Everybody really has their own story that separates them from another restaurant. And if you ask enough questions, you can you can find the differentiator. Those are some of the things that you want to highlight. It's time to come together on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. I'm often reminded of my friendships with the giants in the culinary world, with whom I have broken bread and occasionally a side of gumbo. Passionate chefs who make a difference in our vast world of food. Remarkably, but no surprise, many hail from Louisiana. Paul Prudhomme, John False, Justin Wilson, to name a few. Chefs who are not only ambassadors for the sugar state, but also the rich culture of American cuisine. I'm blessed knowing them, and they all share a passion that shines well beyond the Big Easy and the Cajun state. They say New York is the world's food capital. If that is so, once you get a taste of cooking Louisiana, you will agree New Orleans is undoubtedly the soul. Joining us today is Kevin Belton, a Louisiana culinary legend. His TV series is taped in the studios of WYES-TV, PBS in New Orleans. His fourth TV series, Kevin Belton's Cooking Louisiana, explores the rich and multifaceted foodways of Louisiana. The multi-award-winning chef visits locations all across the state, to look at the authentic food traditions of Louisiana cuisine. The chef features dishes that blend Louisiana's complex food culture with recipes and stories that reflect its prolific fisheries, citrus harvest, and thriving family farms. Chef, hello. It's so great to have you. I don't know if I have to pay you to what you just read just now. That was fantastic. (laughs) You are really carrying that baton of... Of Louisiana, which is is just is just fantastic. It's it, you're doing such an amazing job. I, I appreciate that. It, it's so interesting the fact that I got to as a kid. I went to Leah Chase's restaurant with my parents because mm. they were friends with her. So then to get older and to actually be there with her in the kitchen from Norna from when I was born. That was incredible. But to hang out with chefs like Paul Perdone and Mike Roussel that was at Brennan's for so long. Uh, yes. All of the, the Warren LaRue, Mr. Warren, that developed the recipes for seven seed salad dressings. I mean, yeah. all yeah. of these, all of them taught me something. And, and what's interesting was, I think everybody can cook. Mm-hmm. It's not so much what they taught me about the food. It's how you treat people and about the business. And what our responsibility is to pass things on. And that's what I learned from them. And who I never would have thought I would have been the one that they would have passed it on to. And now I have to pass it on what I know. Well, we also have a mutual uh, uh, friend. He's unfortunately has passed. Uh, Joe Kahn. Yes. The commissioner of Tailgate. Dirkamish, as affectionately known. What was your roots with him? What was your background with Joe? Joe actually was the first one to get me actually cooking professionally. 
Um, I had wow. I had friends that had restaurants, and I I grew up at the table, and you know, growing up in Louisiana, you grow up at the kitchen table. You know, your cheap labor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's when you first learn about the kitchen. Friends had restaurants, mm-hmm. and I would go help them out periodically. But Joe started the New Orleans School of Cooking, which was to take the mystery out of visitors coming to Louisiana that wanted to know how to take Louisiana cooking and do it back home. So when I first started with Joe in like 1990, 1991, I actually managed the store because we had a store that had only Louisiana products. So I learned all the inventory of the store and learned about ordering and things like that. Then I slowly moved to the kitchen to teach the classes. And, and Joe was the first one got me introduced into teaching classes. And you've been teaching for quite some time. I, I've heard somewhere that you've taught like thousands of classes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. I stopped pretty much teaching about, well, you never stop teaching, but classes mm-hmm. I stopped doing about three years ago. But you figure from 1991 till now, you know, till three years ago, yeah, that's a lot of folks. But it was fun. You know, whatever you do, you have to have fun at it. And it was a joy to be able to just to share with people a little bit of Louisiana. You know, one of the things about our cooking is not so much what's on the table, it's who's at the table. You know, I think everybody assumes we're greedy, but we use food as a way to visit. Right, right. Now, your, your classroom, you are still teaching because your classroom is bigger. You know, now you're on PBS and Create, and, you know, you're stepping into one of the biggest classrooms in the world. <laughs> you, know, it, it's, you know, what's interesting is I come from a family teacher. My mother taught at a business school. My, mm-hmm. my dad's sister uh, taught second grade. My dad's uh, sister-in-law, my uncle's wife, taught kindergarten. And my uncle was a principal, and my mom's sister was a principal. So I, I got it on all sides of the family. <laughs> I, I mean, it always it always blows me away how good teachers, chefs are. And I think that's something that the industry doesn't get credit for. But with you two, you both have education backgrounds and both of your shows are so approachable and shows that I actually cook recipes from. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about creating what both of you do is you can actually cook the stuff that you make. Uh, you know, th- that is the biggest compliment because... I want folks to try it. You know, that's the greatest thing about Louisiana cooking is that we're swamps. Originally, we were swamps. The only ones here were the Native Americans. Okay. They showed everyone coming in how to use all the herbs and spices growing wild mm-hmm. to survive. So when the French, French came with the sauces, the Picanti, this, the, the, the Picanti came with the Spanish. The African showed how to cook it on a low fire to allow those flavors to blend together. And then what the first four started, let's throw in 36 different nationalities. <laughs> so as everybody came in, they added to what they knew at home from mother and grandmother. That's why you can look at a Louisiana recipe. And if something you don't like, don't do it. Something that you like, add a little more to it. Yeah, that's good advice, too. People get so hung up on following the recipe to the T, and then they don't realize that you can mix and match a little bit. I often have friends that will say, hey, I tried this new recipe. And I'm like, how did it come out? They said, it was great except for such and such. I'm like, well, why did you put it in if you know you don't like it? (laughs) Our cooking, it always tastes a little different. When mother or grandmother would make something, it would always taste a little bit different just because of the fact that we don't go to the grocery store. Okay? All right. The onion, celery, green pepper is the trinity. But guess what? If there's no bell pepper, mom's going to use onion and celery. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
If there is something else missing, she's going to substitute that instead of this. So that's what makes it so great that it's so adaptable. You can and and, and just I that's that's what great. I just want people to try it. Just keep it simple and try it. But cooking, if you eat cereal, it has to come out of a box into a bowl. That's preparation. That's cooking. <laughs> cooking is preparing food to eat. That's all it is. Well, I know some people can't get the cereal in the bowl. So, <laughs> well, some people put too much milk. Some people put too little. Uh, you know, there's there's a foundation and technique to anything. Oh, you know, I have a I have a a great friend. Uh, he's a musician, Rocking Dupsy, and we were talking the other day, and he eats his cereal with water, he doesn't like milk. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, come on, yeah, that's rough. <laughs> <laughs> now, Kevin, I've spent a lot of time in Louisiana, both professionally, uh, educationally, filming. Um, it is just remarkable, all the different cultures that come together. But I, I need to say your most recent book really opened up my eyes even a little bit more because I guess my my education and background of people from Louisiana was the typical French-Spanish Arcadian uh, heritage that came in, but not according to your current book. It's it's so much deeper now. So share some of the, the the background that you that you have in that book. Well, you know, I, I think that's you're you're absolutely right because everyone here is Creole, firstborn mm-hmm. new colony of foreign parents. So when you think of Creoles, you think of New Orleans. You know, the Acadians, France to Canada, mm-hmm. they settled west of the city. So the Acadians settled mm-hmm. west of New Orleans. You had prairie cages and you had land cages. Or I should say mm-hmm. you had prairie cages and you had bayou cages. So when you get north of I-10, then it's a whole different world. You know, south of I-10, everybody oh. has rubbing between their toes and, you know, everybody <laughs> talks funny. They make sure they talk like that, you know. And, and, but when you get north of I-10, there's so many different cultures and nationalities that I found around the States. But one of the most surprising things I found in traveling around the States talking with everybody, the Native American influence, it like laid the groundwork for everything in the state. So as everybody came in, the Native Americans had laid such a great groundwork for everybody, such a good foundation. And as you go around the state, you find these little pockets of folks that decided to make Louisiana home. As far as uh, some of the foods that kind of have melded together, uh, what types of dishes have grown out of this 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 cultural mix? You know, it's when you when I when you get up further, uh, you know, you figure Louisiana is kind of divided up into like five different sections. You know, the northern part of the state around Shreveport and Monroe area that's called Sportsman's Paradise because they have so many lakes up there and there's a lot of fishing. One of the things I notice with all the recipes, no matter who's doing it, it's always a lot of fresh ingredients. So when you get that northern part of the state, like Shreveport is in the top west corner, and it's at I-20 corridor that comes across from Texas. You hit Ruston and uh, and Grambling, and then you get to Monroe on the eastern side. They have a southern influence in the cooking, especially the Monroe area because you get the Southern influence from Mississippi and Arkansas right above. So you get chicken fried steak. Mm. You get things like that, but you're going to have that same flavorful Louisiana seasoning to it. You know, and all the sides are going to be the same, but there's that little Southern twist to it 
where and you get to the Shreveport area, you, you don't get a Tex-Mex, but they call it Arklatex. That right. corner up, up there. So you get a little bit more of the meat dishes and that little kind of a steak, that western feel on that side. But when you strip all of that away, it's still very flavorful food. Not hot, but just seasoned very well, and it's always fresh and green. Have you seen any major changes in the food and restaurant scene since you started in the early 90s? Because it seems like you guys were already doing the farm-to-table and fresh ingredients stuff. You know, it, it went away for a while, and I think we've always used it to a certain degree, but folks made the effort to bring it back. And in the past probably 15 years, we've had a lot of farms pop up on the north shore of Lake Pontchartrain. Okay. So where, where the towns of Mandeville and Covington, all that area, those were the farms that fed the city. Then we had a huge German community southwest of the city called Gazalamans. And these, the Germans there were farmers. So it was these farms from Gazalamans and across on the North Shore that they grew the crops that actually fed the city. And now there's some farms returning on the North Shore. Uh, there's a couple of quail farms. There's a couple of duck farms. There's a couple of farms raising pigs. So it's all back to... Kind of, you know how things come full circle? Yeah. It, it, it's back to that again. I mean, back that way. But the, the, the food has not really changed. I think I have a dear friend, Michael Delana. Michael has taken, when he does his gumbo, he takes a little touch of Vietnamese and puts a little bit of Vietnamese influence in it. And when you taste it, you don't taste it right away. But you go, okay, there's something here just a tiny bit different. So when he does his gumbo, you know, we're used to using gumbo crabs, the small blue crabs to pop off the shells, break them up, throw them down in, or actually you can throw them in with the whole shells because they're small. Well, Michael has taken, in, in the Vietnamese grocery stores, you can find crab fat. You can find jars of crab fat. So he puts oh, my some crab fat nice. in the gumbo, yeah, and it gives it that same flavor as, you know, how something you put on the bone or in a shell has a different flavor. So that's yeah, why that we collagen. put the gumbo crabs in the gumbo. So Michael takes that crab fat and puts in there. And, and a couple other little touches, like a little lemongrass in there. And it just adds another depth of flavor. I think one can uh, have a bowl of gumbo a day for 25 years and probably not have the same two bowls day to day. Is that, is that, is that, is that math right? Did I do that math right? You did that math right. <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and gumbo got its name from okra. The Africans brought the okra seeds. Okra was called kingambo. It was the one thing that went in the soup and it helped thicken it. So it got the name from gambo to gumbo. But it went in the soup to thicken it. And then when okra wasn't available, it would use filet powder, which is ground sassafras. And filet powder would be put in at the end of your gumbo cooking and it would thicken it just like the okra would. So filet would use when okra was out of season. Now, Kevin, one thing I have to ask you now, this is... Highly personal, but I, I think you, you got I'm putting you on the spot. Uh-oh. Now, we haven't had a chance to meet personally yet. When I see your show and when I've seen your literature and your books, you scream, I'm having fun. Where does, the, where does that recipe come from? What is the ingredients of that recipe? Mom and dad. Dad was real quiet, but when he said something, it was usually a zinger. My mom <laughs> just had that typical, what we call down here, the joie de vivre, the joy in life. 
my mom just had that and I just inherited that. And, you know, she always said, no matter what you do, you have to work. And no matter what you do, whether it's in school, whether it's working, just make it enjoyable, make it pleasant and have fun doing it. And we have a ball. The crew, when we're filming, we, we have a ball, just an absolute ball. It shows. It shows all the time. It, you know, and I, I got to compliment you on that because uh, there's nothing worse than an angry chef. <laughs> you can relate to this. You've walked in a kitchen before and you can feel tension in the kitchen. And mm. to me, that tension comes across on the plate as well. Well, that's one of Kevin Belton's uh, secret ingredients. Sprinkle a little bit of joy. Thank you for uh, being here today. That was Chef Kevin Belton, TV host of Cooking Louisiana from WYES, PBS TV, and host of CBS WWL TV morning show in New Orleans. Author of four cookbooks, including the just released Cooking Louisiana. You can get more information on Kevin's TV shows on PBS and create TV stations, books, and recipes at kevinbelton.com. A chef knows food is the foundation of genuine happiness the unspoken word to share with that next generation of everything they have learned and experienced. Their heart and soul of cooking. I'm George Hirsch with today's Good to Know. A cast iron skillet is one of the most versatile pieces of equipment in the kitchen. Skillet meals are only limited by your imagination. From sauteing an omelet, stir frying vegetables, to baking cakes and pies, all with impressive results. Although no longer in business, Griswold Manufacturing Company was founded in Erie, Pennsylvania in 1865 and was the leading American maker of cast iron cookware for almost a century. Their skillets are the standard of quality and are considered collector's items, actually inherited and passed down from generation to generation. I have prepared many a good meals with my grandmother's Griswold. Today, cast iron manufacturers produce a lighter, easy-to-use pre-seasoned skillets, offering the benefit of cooking without the added years of seasoning a pan. It may not replace a long-coveted cast iron heirloom, but still provides durability and reliability of cookware for your kitchen. A cast iron skillet has a proud past and has come a long way, linked to the soul of American history. And that's good to know. Recently, Alex and I were in the kitchen, creating some exciting dishes and having fun with food. They say New York City never sleeps. Could it be that there's almost 4,000 coffee shops in New York City alone? One of the primary reasons why coffee shops are so popular is their relaxed and open feel and no-nonsense menu of food and service. I've always found a mom-and-pop-run coffee shop is a perfect place to find a calm atmosphere to gather with family and friends, even for just to catch up over a fresh-brewed cup of coffee, and perhaps a fresh-baked scone. Hey, Alex. So, Alex, I know you uh, you like to sometimes chill out at coffee shops. In fact, even during some of our uh, shoots, we've taken a break, even on the North Fork over here in Greenport. There's a fantastic um, barista over there. Incredible scones. But I notice you never get muffins. <laughs> Yeah, well, as you well know, I kind of hate muffins. I guess we need to give a little bit of background for that. I don't know. I, I don't understand muffins. Muffins are like cupcakes, dry, savory, weird cousin, you know? 
And it reminds me of actually the first time that I ever met you because I was writing. It was the last interview that I had to do for a summer internship mm -hmm. and you were the subject. And I had gone out and maybe had one too many beers the night before because after I had finished that copy, I was heading back to the city and that was it. And I showed up to your house pretty hungover in the morning. And I remember the first thing you did when I walked inside was off. But I didn't, I didn't actually know you were, <laughs> you were hungover. So you're doing a pretty good job of camouflaging. No, you had no idea. I was sleeping in my car at the end of the road waiting for it because I just like left my house too early and was dying when I got there. And I'll never forget, like, not only was I not hungry, but my mouth was so dry. I remember thinking, like, I don't know how I'm even going to talk during this interview. And you opened the door and you and Trish were there and you're both so happy and friendly. <laughs> and you had a big plate of sour cream coffee cake muffins, I think, right? Your sour cream coffee cake in muffin form. Now, let's back this up also a little bit because you did come over to the house and most of the time interviews I would either do on the phone or I would meet I would meet somebody at a coffee shop actually. But I don't know why, but uh, my my agent probably said, you know, I think this is a good guy. You know, you might want to have him come over. And and generally when I do entertain anybody in the media and press, they would always get something fresh baked. Yeah. I, I mean for a normal person that would have been a great thing, but just the headspace I was in and I just don't like muffins. And it was just so funny because I think the first words we ever said to each other was you were like, Hi Alex, welcome to my home. Have a muffin. And I think the first thing I said to you was, I hate muffins. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean it's funny too, because like you want to talk about being a snob. You know, I interviewed so many people that summer and, and out here in the Hamptons, you run into all sorts of weirdos and you have strange interactions and, you know, it's like la la land out here. And I went to your house and I remember thing like, okay, I'm interviewing a TV chef. Meanwhile, the next morning I had to be at work in a Michelin starred kitchen in the city and I had just been working as a line cook my whole life. So the amount of quote unquote chefs that I would meet, you know, it always made me laugh. Like half of them would be people who just like cooked at home. And I asked you, I, I said, okay, you know, I, I had said something like, what do you remember from your days cooking that you brought to TV or something like that? And you just started rattling off this recipe for cheesecake. And it started with something insane, like 90 pounds of flour, a hundred pounds of cream cheese, 50 pounds of butter. And I remember all of a sudden it like got my attention. It snapped me out of the haze that I was in. And and we had an amazing conversation about your baking background, which is yeah. very extensive. It is. I mean, I, I learned at a very young age, Alex. Um, I couldn't specialize. My, one of my mentors had said, don't specialize in anything. Learn everything. Just, just don't cook. Just don't bake. Learn everything. And if you're going to go up to the ranks as an executive chef and manager of the people, you better you better know everything. But I learned under the old guard, you know, and you had contact with some of them. I know when you were coming in, an old German, an old European style, um, you weren't even allowed to write things down. It's not like you were stealing their recipes, but you couldn't write it down. You had to kind of memorize it and just be ready and calculate things in your head. So I, I think you just snapped something in my brain that, that morning when you came out and I just gave you the recipe for 30 cheesecakes. Yeah, well, I think that that's something that kind of gets lost on people these days too, right? Uh, going back to what you said was important about your education was you had to kind of be a jack of all trades. And I think that sometimes being a jack of all trades gets like a negative connotation. And actually, it's funny, you just jogged something in my memory. I had read something the other day that said, the quote, jack of all trades, master of none, 
usually has a negative connotation, but apparently that's only half of the real saying. And the full saying is, jack of all trades, master of none, is better than being a master of one. And I think when you're a chef, it, sometimes people say like, oh, you're a chef, you mastered being a chef. But what isn't apparent is that really you have to master hundreds, if not thousands of different things to be a good chef. You know, I mean, just what you need to know in baking to grilling to sauteing to working with vegetables, meats, proteins, whatever it is, you really have to be a master at being a jack of all trades. And there is a distinctive difference between cooking and baking. When you're cooking, you can experiment. You can be a little bit more highly creative, whereas baking, you're you're dealing with with ratios and formulas. It's more of a scientific base, you know, whether it's doughs or cakes or muffins. You can't just say, well, gee, I like this muffin to be a little sweeter. I'm just going to up the sugar or up the inclusions in it, which we're just going to keep it heavy. So it's it's just learning some of those scientific principles. And um, I guess you didn't really catch all that because you did have a muffin. That's right. You did have a muffin at the- On my way out. All right. A, a, again, you know, interviews would generally be about 45 minutes. Our interview was what, four and a half hours? Yeah, I was there for like four hours. And I think yeah. your wife, Trish, brought me out a delicious glass of iced tea. And it was like, all of a sudden I could swallow again. And then I had a muffin and, and they're good. They're good muffins. But at the same time, like, when I think of a muffin, I think of like dry oat brand muffin, you know, and these were sour cream coffee cake muffins. And I like coffee cake. They were like a hybrid. It was like a muffin cupcake hybrid, I would say. And one of the wonderful things about that particular recipe, which we'll get into a little later in the show, of course, is um, it's good for almost any type of the day. You know, this was a, I think, mid late morning that you came over just, you know, for coffee or whatever. But it's it's good for breakfast treat. It's good for a, a late night snack, you know. Yeah, and I took a bag of them home, and I remember eating two more on my car ride back to my house. And whether it's a, a muffin or if it's a, in a loaf or a cake or a sheet, um, I mean, does that change it up a little bit for you? If it's not in the muffin shape or not in a muffin cup, does that does that change it for you? No, not really. And I'm not a cake fan either. Like even as a kid, I would always want either angel food cake. And I think really because it was a vessel to dip in like chocolate syrup. It had no like flavor of its own except being like a sponge or ice cream cake. That was it. But one cake that was delicious was you made the cake for my sister's wedding. And my sister and my mom are gluten-free and everyone else isn't. And I remember the top two layers you made gluten-free and the bottom two layers you made regular and nobody could tell the difference. And not only that, but a lot of people ate the gluten-free by accident and thought that it was better than the regular. So that cake was good. But I think that also it comes down to like if you're a master of your craft and you are. And, and I remember when we were making that cake, you were making the cake. I was doing other stuff. But you were making your own gluten-free flour blend. And you were explaining to me how different types of gluten-free flour mixed together to cause the reactions that you need for proper baking, and that just came out phenomenal. Well, the gluten-free and the flour is probably a subject and a, and a show in itself, but I kind of agree with you. I'm, you know I'm not big on sweets. You know my hero is George Crumb. Remember the potato chip cookies? You're a chip man yourself. Yeah, the potato chip cookies are great. I mean, salt, chocolate, and crunch are my favorite combination for sweets. Restaurants have always played an essential role in the life of a thriving society. And today, people are more passionate about food than ever. 
Everyone wants to read more about restaurants, see their food pics on social media, and watch chefs creating. You'd be amazed how the chef preparing your meal pours his heart and soul into making a dish. But how does a chef stand apart from the crowd? They need to quickly make a good impression if they're to succeed. The solution is simple with a strategic communication plan to educate and inform the community. Joining us is Steve Hawili, founder and president of Wordhampton Public Relations, one of New York and Long Island's most successful and recognizable ambassadors in the restaurant hospitality lifestyle business. Thanks for joining us, Steve. It's great to be here, George. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. Oh, I, there's so much we have to get to. But first, I, I want to start with, I recently just found out that your mother had a background as a teacher. That's correct. Both my, in fact, my, both sides of the family are all educators uh, or were all educators. They were uh, teachers. My dad was a school superintendent. My mom was a teacher. Her sister was a teacher. Um, on my dad's side of the family, his two sisters were teachers and his brother was a professor of English at Worcester Polytech. So education is in my family. There's no question about it. Well, I just again, recently found this out. And we're going to talk about food and hospitality in a second with Alex. But one of your clients is the Writing Instrument Manufacturers Association. I said to myself, Alex, yeah. what the heck <laughs> is that? Oh, I saw that and too. Th and then I got really excited because you know why? One of the companies, I did actually do a story on them years ago, is Ticonderoga. Dixon Ticonderoga Pencil. Yeah. It's a great pencil company. I love it. Well, well it's it. like every major writing instrument company was under that umbrella. I couldn't believe it. Two number two sharp pencils. It's a, a guy I went to college with uh, saw me make a presentation about social media up at up at the college, uh, Hamilton College, and uh, he reached out to me because he recognized that this this entity and the Writing Instrument Manufacturers Association is. Uh, it's, as you mentioned, Dixon Ticonderoga pencil. It's also a federal pencil. It's mm -hmm. um, uh, Bic pen, Pilot pen, you name it. Anybody that that writes and is uh, that has a writing instrument. And I, I think that they wanted to have a trade association. Of course, we we understand now there's trade associations for everything, everything right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, we created a website for them, and then they recognized that they needed uh, a social media presence. So we've been handling that. Um, uh, first, we did Facebook, and then we handled their Instagram account for the past several years. And um, uh, we honor John Hancock uh, as the patron saint of, uh, of of writing because you know we, he signed the declaration and. Um, so you're not uh, representing a quill pen company. No, 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 <laughs> no. Uh, a couple hundred years ago, we would have. Oh, okay, right? okay. But uh, anyway, so that's that's what they're all about. And um, uh, National Handwriting Day is January 23rd. Who knew there was such a thing? But um, and that's John Hancock's birthday. Well, let's begin to talk a little bit about food. And to me, one of the greatest PR legends that I knew and was a dear friend actually taught me a lot um, as well was the late Paul Prudhomme. Mm. To me, I think he was the consummate in educating the public and PR. There was nobody better than putting together an event or recipe or or teaching a history on a culture and a chef. I mean, come on. After all, you know, he got the, the world into blackening. Yep. I yeah. mean, if you could just take a food and burn the heck out of it yeah. and make it into a thing, this, this man was a thing. 
I mean, have you been in that kind of uh, situation where you're educating the public, the consumers, chefs on how to stand apart? Well, I think that every, uh, let's just take restaurants and, and or chefs, everybody has their own message. Everybody really has their own story that separates them from another restaurant. And if you ask enough questions, you can you can find the differentiator, if you will. And then that's uh, th those are some of the things that you that you want to highlight, um, either if you're working with the media. Now, of course, with the advent of social media, that's another place to um, get your message out there. Um, so, yeah, what we've found is that everybody's got their own special message and um we try to communicate that in a uh, professional manner and one that's consistent with the um, uh, the concept of the restaurant and or the, or the or the personality of the chef. Is there a campaign that sticks out, Steve? Well, I, I would say that there's there's two things that come to mind. Both of them, we won uh, PRSA, Public Relations Society of America, Big Apple Awards, which is a pretty big deal. And uh, one is the launch of Coche Comedor. Um, the Honest Management Group's uh, very authentic Mexican restaurant in Amagansert. Um, there were a lot of interesting storylines there. Um, the team went to Mexico City to research uh, all their food. They brought uh, a contingent that included uh, their Mexican chefs. And that is not typical Mexican food as Americans know it. They're doing things like a rotisserie barbecued duck with a tamarind sauce. Mm -hmm. uh, Even their they, mole. The, the the mole, every time they do a picture on Instagram of the mole, there's like 20 ingredients on a table. Which is a process. classic mole, right? Yeah, and yeah. they have like three different moles. Um there's a Chinito duck fried rice that I am addicted to. They have a number of ceviches. So the ingredients actually speak for themselves and their preparation because they also make handmade tortillas. So everything is on point there. And then just the decor. So Tony Ross, who is uh, the Tony of Nick and Tony, is a very accomplished artist and a woman with a great eye. Uh, she came up with the idea of having local artists create tabletops. And the amazing thing about those tabletops is they're all very multi multicolored and, and sort of pastels, but they all work. Even though these artists all created their own um, renditions, uh, Bastian Schmidt, Steve Miller, it really works from a tabletop perspective. They also got a Brooklyn um, graffiti artist to do a, a wall that says Coche. Yeah, right? that mural alone is one of the things that grabbed me because that you know. had so much, it was in press. I it's, mean, you saw that image over and over yeah. and it just worked. It's, it's a great pull. So there were a lot of things to work with visually. And then, of course, the food is is really on point. They deliver on the food and the story behind the food. So there were there were a lot of a, a lot of hooks for us to work with, and um, we keep working with them to, to this day. Those those same hooks because you got to keep repeating the message. You know? mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that um, you were probably one of the first, if not the first, as far as as I can recall, is coming together with a program that would not only benefit chefs, they would benefit restaurants, they would benefit the community. And it was a great way to engage um, actually by people eating. And that is Restaurant Weeks. 
So funny you say that because that's the other uh, award-winning campaign uh, that we were uh, cited for, uh, Long Island Restaurant Week. And this was not necessarily our idea, but we executed it. Jerry Delfamina, uh, the great ad man uh, who owned Delfamina Restaurant, and he had a Delfamina Restaurant. I actually did commercials with his agency. There you go. Right. Or radio commercials. Can you imagine that? Yeah. Radio. Wow. Okay. So he says to his then major D, Walter Struble, uh, tell, because New York Restaurant Week was going on. This is now, I think it's 2003, 2005, I forget. He says, uh, tell Steve he should do a restaurant week. I looked at Nicole, my partner. I go, who's going to do all the work? I mean, this is an enormous <laughs> yeah, back undertaking. then, you were, you were busy sending out a million faxes. Right. Now, yeah. I used to get fax from him every day. Right, right. Uh, I don't every know, day. What's a fax? Right. <laughs> right. It was right. It was faxes. And, it's like, uh, you know how you put things in an oven? So just, it's something like that. You, you put paper, like, in this machine. And this is before, uh, well, actually, this is, email had just started. We, I sent out an email to, like, the guys I knew. And they all said, yeah, you know, we, we, we would do it. And then we didn't follow up because we knew <laughs> it was a huge undertaking. So now it's, like, late February. Uh, Walter calls me, goes, hey, Jerry wants to know how a restaurant we've going. I look at Nicole, I go, oh, my God, we have to do this. So we said, well, look, if we're going to do this, We've got to nail it. We've got to own it. And so we didn't really observe too much about what New York Restaurant Week was, except it's, it's, it's discount dining. But we said, well, you can't really offer it on a Saturday night. If, if you did, you're going to only offer it to 7 o'clock because we didn't want to take Saturday night away from these guys, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just so that people know, it's usually like a set price fix that's cheaper than what the regular menu would be. So I that's know a lot of times chefs will do a different menu. I know for me personally, I worked a lot of restaurant weeks and it was always a good time to experiment where you could get some stuff out there to see a new menu item maybe. Correct. And and restaurants need to embrace it. That's the other thing because, uh, you know, the reason it's a successful promotion is if you think about all the money that you might spend as a restaurateur on marketing – advertising, everything. The one thing about Restaurant Week, it gets people in the restaurant. So the premise is, if you get into our restaurant, you're going to like our food, you're going to like our service, you're going to like our decor, and you'll come back. Right. You put your best foot forward. You're not, Absolutely. You're yeah. not putting up last week's stinky fish for a discounted price. Right. Yeah. But a lot of yeah. guys a lot of guys had that mentality. Now they've pretty much understood that this is a tremendous opportunity. When we've had as many as 190 restaurants across Long Island sign up, and it started out with Hamptons Restaurant Week. Then our Up Island client said, hey, when are you going to do a, a Long Island Restaurant Week? And I go, oh my goodness, how are we going to do that? And we did it. So we did a fall Long Island Restaurant Week. That was the first Long Island Restaurant Week. And then we added a spring and then we added a winter. And now those eclipse anything we do for Hamptons Restaurant Week. In fact, Hamptons Restaurant Week is sort of now has morphed into East End Restaurant Week because we had so much support from the North Fork, which as you know, is a burgeoning um, uh, you know, restaurant area. And so, um, yeah, that's the, that's the story behind that. Well, I think another important thing about restaurant week out here that it did for small businesses is it was always in the off season. So it brought people in during a time when a restaurant might be closed for the season or might just be, you know, really dragging on getting business. So it really helps drag up off season business. Yeah, that's, that's correct, Alex. And And just to point out to our, our friends who are off the Island, you know, Long Island is a big place. How many would you say for for those that 
are, are covering. I mean, we're covering an area of 100 miles. Oh, it's 100 miles by 25 miles. By 25 miles. And With 3 um, million people. You know, I'm not sure of an accurate number of- But it's hundreds that are- Oh, it's hundreds. It's hundreds. Thousands, hundreds yeah. of restaurants. Thousands of restaurants. It's probably thousands. Oh, thousands of restaurants. restaurants. Oh, okay. I would think so, That's a yeah. big number. That's a big number. We reach out to about 600 and, you know, we end up getting, um, you know, from- And then now we've adjusted the pricing so that we can make it more available for the, the, the mid to lower scale, mm -hmm. but the upscale restaurants do very, very well. And this is a chance for you to experience it. Well, I know when I was younger, uh, a place that was fancy and that you might not be able to get into, like Stone Creek Inn when right. you're in your early 20s, but a cook that you want to try, you could try it during restaurant week. Now, Steve, there's another component of you I just found out about that you used to hide in your basement. This, <laughs> where is this going? Yeah. George. You to, what was it? Your garage? <laughs> it was, no, it, it, was it was the basement. It was the basement. I wasn't okay. hiding. You, I was creating no, you art hiding. surreptitiously because I wasn't a trained artist and I was very uh, um, self conscious about the work that I was creating. And it turned out that there's a bit of a natural uh, expression there. And I, I have a decent sense of uh, composition and I have a, a pretty good couple of mentors. And so art uh, was something that just came up right from within. And, you know, I've had a measure of success and I'm very grateful. It's really been a, a fun thing. And it's... Uh, well, it's uh, not just fun. And it's not a time to be humble. I mean, I, I know the abstract art that you... I've been to your shows. They're mesmerizing when you look at it. Um, to say... In a, in a small way, you're in the league of Kadinsky and Pollock and Koenig, I think is probably just testament to the the vortex of the creative art world that you're living in out here. So, well, those are very kind words, and I and I thank you. I uh, I do channel Pollock, and I do channel uh, Kandinsky, and I do also channel uh, de Kooning. And of course, it's even easier when you know de Kooning. I knew Lisa de Kooning, and I went to de Kooning's studio, and I've been to Pollock's studio, and Pollock's studio is a mile from our office. De Kooning's uh, home and his erstwhile studio is uh, two miles from our office, and. Um, yeah, it's been a gift and it's been a lot of fun. And I probably feel the most free when I am just simply creating art. It's an amazing feeling. Those of you who, who do that, you know what I'm talking about, you know. So yeah, I was going to say, with how busy you are in the business world, <laughs> what does the art do for you mentally? Well, it's a complete release and it's a complete freedom, uh, a, a complete airing out of my, of my business head, if you will. And I, um, um, I just just create, you know, and it's, uh, it's almost, it's like cooking too. Like when you, uh, when you go to create, I was, I made uh, pesto yesterday, right? I didn't have, I mean, I have the recipe in my head, you know, but it's, it's, you take a handful of this and, and make sure you, in my case, I warm up the, the pine nuts, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just a, a matter of, uh, the, the alchemy that, that goes into cooking and the same alchemy that goes into, uh, creating a piece of art. Well, that's fantastic. Steve, thanks for joining us. That was Steve Awili, founder and president of Wordhampton Public Relations and gifted abstract artist. For more on Wordhampton and his art, visit wordhampton.com and hawili.com. For more food, culture, and lifestyle tips, guest interviews, and our podcast, visit wliw.org slash radio and chefgeorgehirsch.com. 
And join our conversation on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WLIWFM and at George Hirsch. So, Alex, I just came across the other day uh, another celebration. It was the 71st anniversary since the launch of the Bunt Pan. Okay. <laughs> that is a weird celebration. And, and you came across the 71st? You didn't come across the 70th or like the no, 75th? Like, it's the 71st. 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 And the reason why it triggered, you know, we were talking about coffee cakes and muffins and everything like that. But another wonderful way to make that sour cream coffee cake is in the, is in the bunt pan. And the bunt isn't really the name of the cake. So you mean to tell me, though, that the bunt pan's only been around since like 1950? Yeah, it was created in in 1950 because it was based on a a European tradition of the Kugelhof pan or cake or shape. And Mr. Dahlquist, and I actually met them. They are the owners of uh, commercial aluminum. But they came up with this pan and it became highly popular uh, because of its shape, its ring shape, its tube, and kind of the, the the bumpy look on it when it's when it's inverted, so it just it makes a marvelous uh, uh, taste or character in the cake when it's baked because it's just not baking from the outside in; it's baking also from the inside out. Yeah, it's, I would imagine that it, that's why it's more even, right? Because of the tube. Yeah. Um, so that I really just, thought that that would have been older than the fifties. That I thought that would be something that came over from Europe or something. Hundreds it was, of years and ago, and then there was a uh, major uh, uh, instant cake producer in in the late fifties that started doing these instant mixes. They actually flooded the market with it because then they packaged this instant mix where you could make uh, the batter. You know, throw in one egg and your instant pastry chef, and you'd have the the chocolate cake for the middle. You'd have the white cake for the outside, and I even remember my grandmother making them. And uh, it it just being so very popular in probably the '60s and early '70s. But getting back to the sour cream coffee cake, which is everyone's favorite, it is a a cream based cake. Um, very simply. It's just cream sugar with, uh, with butter. Uh, there's no, no milk in it. There's sour cream. That's your, that's your dairy base. Eggs for binding. Uh, chips and nuts. Of course, that crumb topping. We've made together how many? How many? Yeah, we make huge of batches of that. I, I could just eat topping. the crumb topping on its own. It's like I that know. episode of Seinfeld when they just did muffin tops. I want just crumb cake tops like make the crumb cake and just cut the top off and get rid of the rest and didn't you have a situation once in a <laughs> restaurant where there was a crumb thief yeah i was working at a restaurant and, and they made apple cobblers and someone kept stealing the crumbs off the top of the apple cobbler and they were accusing me of doing it so now to this day when i see an apple cobbler i take a little picture of me taking a chunk of the crumb off and then i i text it to my friend Corey, who's the chef just so that she knows the cobbler crumb burglar is still out there <laughs> well, I tell you what. Why don't we make some? Why don't we make some coffee cake with the with the crumbs with those nice streusel brown sugar crisp crumbs on it? Bring it over to Corey, and uh, 
you know, we all get together for for a nice coffee break. Yeah, she's one of your good friends now too. But I I don't need you two conspiring against me because I, I I like my crumbs. I say what you do is you make a batch of sour cream coffee cake muffins and put that crumb top on and then i'll cut off the tops and i'll give you and Corey the stumps and i'll eat the tops or i could just bake your pan of crumbs how about that (laughs) i don't know if it comes out the same i think it needs that base on the bottom you know you can't just do crumbs it's got to be together yeah i just don't need the rest of it because that's the dry part that's what i don't get about muffins well that's the part about having coffee with it or having some type of hot beverage, it's it just it, it's a nice balance, and I think that is, you know, it is kind of like a marriage made in heaven. You know, the the sour cream coffee cake and the, and a nice hot cup of cup of coffee. Well, it's funny. Like it used to be a thing when I was a kid, right? Like you'd watch cartoons or you'd watch sitcoms or whatever. And it was a thing that if someone had a cup of coffee, they dunked like a donut in it. You know, I don't see people dunk stuff in coffee very much anymore. Yeah. And there was a donut chain that years ago, uh, and again, probably back in the 60s, they actually had a donut with like a little handle. It was it was like a ring with a little nugget that, that stuck out that you could hold on to that while you dunk your, dunk your donut. Yeah. I mean, I wonder what that's about. I feel like I feel like that was a way for a coffee house chain to get away with selling like dried older pastry goods because, oh, you just dunk it and then all of a sudden it's moist. And you just, may, you know, they don't sell stuff like that anymore. Everything is fresh every single day. So uh, I'm wondering if that's what the change was. Well, maybe, maybe not because it didn't take hold in other food products. You know, I, I don't see people dunking pizza or dunking old burgers. <laughs> that's or true. Something yeah. like that, so. I do see people dunking French fries in milkshakes, and that's actually pretty good. You ever dunk a French fry in a chocolate milkshake? (laughs) Well, I think we've kind of covered it. (laughs) Till next time. Foods you can dunk and foods you can't. Glad to have you join us on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. Our producer is Delaney Hafner, along with production support from Kyle Lynch. Supervising producer is Allie Gimble. George Hirsch and Diane Michelli are co-executive producers. George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio is a co-production of Hirsch Media and Audio Engagement Group, LLC. Thanks so much for tuning in to George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, the show that celebrates how our lives are connected through food and culture. For more episodes and our podcast, visit wiw.org radio and chefgeorgehirsch.com and your favorite streaming and podcast platforms. We'll see you next week right here on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio.